Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. The Arctic is changing. As the polar ice cap recedes, new shipping routes open up and access expands to Arctic energy resources. John Banks, a non-resident senior fellow with the Energy Security Initiative at Brookings, explains what these changes mean for Arctic governance and for U.S. leadership of the Arctic Council in 2015. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We're here today to talk about the Arctic. You're, you're the co-author with uh, Charles Ebinger and Elisa Shackman of a recent report, Offshore Oil and Gas Governance in the Arctic, a Leadership Role for the United States. And we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but why do we need to focus on the Arctic now? Uh, most people think of it as the land of ice and polar bears, a place for scientific expeditions. <laughs> right. Well, I think quite simply, uh, there is more attention on the Arctic now because the ice cap has been receding in the last several decades due to climate change. And that increasing access is demanding more focus on the region. Essentially now, with that access, there's greater uh, interest in uh, uh, some commercial opportunities in minerals, oil and gas, uh, shipping, fisheries, etc., uh, and there's also increased focus on sort of the military security realm as well. So that changing nature of the Arctic is opening up access, and that access, I think, is demanding our greater focus and attention. And, and why do you uh, call for a leadership role for the U.S.? Well, in the recent research uh, that we did, uh, we consistently heard both within the U.S. and in the U.S. government, as well as the international community, a question about what the view of the U.S. is and what its role is and its policy is in the Arctic. We consistently heard questions that um, uh, concern what the U.S. policy focus is. Are we going to accede to UNCLOS, which is a major international treaty focusing on uh, the law of the sea, but obviously includes the Arctic. And so um, that led us to believe that we really needed to put, a put more attention on what the U.S. can do structurally, institutionally, uh, to put a face to that policy and, and, to, and to increase its focus on the region for all the reasons that, that we stated. Now, the U.S. is taking uh, the, the chairmanship of something called the Arctic Council in 2015. Right. What is the Arctic Council and what does that mean that the U.S. will be the chair of that group? Right. The Arctic Council is a body that was formed uh, in 1996. It consists of the eight Arctic nations and it's, uh, it does not have a legal personality. It's not an institution that passes laws or is directly involved in enforcing any, any laws or other legal instruments. It was set up primarily as a, a very high-level uh, forum for the governments to get together and to talk primarily about research and scientific activities and needs in the region. Um, and it is structured around several working groups um, focused on issues related to protection of the marine environment, uh, emergency response, uh, biodiversity, things like that. And those working groups are formed uh, of, uh, can comprise experts from the various countries and NGOs that do periodic studies uh, on those issues. And so it is, it is unique uh, primarily, I think, in my view, in that it includes um, the indigenous communities as permanent participants. So there's different categories of memberships. The eight Arctic states are members. The indigenous communities have permanent participant status, which allows them to contribute to the dialogue. 
And then there are a series of observers, which uh, can be, um, there's several countries, uh, NGOs, the World Wildlife Fund, for example, is, is, an, uh, is an observer to the Arctic Council. So it is unique in that it allows the indigenous community of a pretty strong voice in regional activities. But the Arctic Council generally forms as sort of a, a more of a scientific organization, a convener, a sort of mm -hmm. broker of issues, it draws attention to issues uh, in the Arctic. Does it include industry representatives, oil and gas business? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, at the moment, it does not. And that's one thing we heard in our discussions, in our research, which generally speaking, the uh, consensus seemed to be that the private sector needed to play a stronger role and be more involved in discussions revolving around governance and how you regulate activities in the Arctic. At the moment, um, the private sector is not as involved in the Arctic Council. And some of that is not a surprise. It wasn't really formed to be a liaison mm -hmm. with the private sector or involve the private sector. Uh, it, was, it was formed, as I mentioned, primarily as a scientific research institution. But we heard that there needs to be a better way to try to integrate uh, the private sector. And in fact, uh, a trade association representing the International Oil and Gas Producers, the OGP, did apply for observer status to the Arctic Council, but it did not move forward in, this, in the last session of the, uh, of the Council. And uh, just parenthetically, the way this functions is, Every two years, a new, a, a new state amongst the, the, the member countries um, is, is appointed to be the, ch the chair of the Arctic Council. The current chair is Canada, and the U.S. Mm -hmm. is to take, take over the chairmanship uh, in uh, 2015, early 2015. Okay. I, I want to get back to what you see as some goals for the U.S. leadership of the Arctic Council in a second. Let's, let's uh, take a very high-level view of the Arctic. Uh, let's review sure. the, the eight Arctic nations. Right, so that's um, that's Canada, the U.S., Greenland, Denmark, which De Greenland has largely autonomous status, but mm -hmm. they still rely and are connected to the Danish government with regard to foreign policy and defense. Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and of course Russia. Okay, and we're talking about uh, oil and gas governance. So, talk a little bit about the kinds of energy resources that are being found in the Arctic. Yes, well, um, so as I mentioned, this, this whole thing is really uh, uh, revolves around the issue of the ice cap receding and providing access uh, to, to resources. Uh, the most definitive estimate of the resources in the oil and gas side was conducted by the USGS, which is the U.S. Uh, uh, Geological Survey uh, in 2007-2008, I believe. Uh, and they did an estimate Arctic-wide, not just the U.S., but Arctic-wide. And we're looking at, uh, according to their estimates, 90 billion barrels of estimated reserves and about 1,600 trillion cubic feet. And that's and, of oil and natural gas. Respectively. And um, to put that in some perspective, so 90 billion barrels throughout mm -hmm. the Arctic, that's both onshore and offshore. And by the way, of those totals, about 83 or 84% is offshore. And to put that into some perspective, the country with the largest oil reserves, Saudi Arabia, has 265 million barrels of oil. So in the Arctic, the estimate is 90 billion barrels. So that's a fairly substantial amount, obviously spread amongst um, the different countries uh, uh, bordering the Arctic. Uh, and the U.S. consumes, again, just to put it a little bit more in, uh, mm -hmm. into perspective, the U.S. consumes anywhere around 17 to 18 million, million barrels a day. So I guess that works out to be somewhere around 6 billion barrels a year. Um, so that's that's just to put the numbers in a little bit of perspective. And I think uh, the 16 trillion cubic feet, I know people don't think in trillion cubic feet yeah. uh, very commonly, but we consume in the U.S. around 20, somewhere in the 20 to 21 trillion cubic feet a year. 
Okay. And the estimated reserves are 1,600 trillion cubic feet in the Arctic region-wide. So another kind of big picture question about the Arctic, uh, and you're talking about governance of the Arctic. What governance is there? Or is the Arctic kind of a, a lawless frontier where all these countries are uh, in a land grab or, a, or I guess a sea grab or an ice grab for resources? Well, you know, that's a, very, that's a common perception, but it's not quite accurate. The international framework that exists provides each country with the right to govern its exclusive economic zone, which is 200 miles from their coast. Mm -hmm. So every country has uh, jurisdiction over over an e what's called an EEZ, an exclusive economic zone, which extends 200 miles from their coast. So if you look at a map and you of the Arctic and you extend each country's uh, coastline out 200 miles or go 200 miles out from their coastline, that's that's the extent that which is governed by those respective coastal states. And that doesn't really leave very much. It leaves a very, very small area in the middle of the Arctic Ocean that is not subject to any of those um, coastal regulations. Mm -hmm. um, so the perception that it's largely sort of not governed is not really quite accurate. And in terms of oil and gas, each of the countries that border the Arctic, the coastal states, do have um, oil and gas uh, governance uh, regulations in place. Uh, there's some nuance to that. Some are a little different and some are stronger and some are newer than others. And that's some of what we were investigating. But by and large, the most binding sort of targeted rules and regulations governing uh, offshore oil and gas uh, is overseen by the coastal states. And there are eight of them. So is it is it the case perhaps that there are eight different regulatory regimes that that uh, that they have right. for their areas? Well, one, one uh, nuance to this, there are eight Arctic countries, but there are five of them that are that have a coast on the Arctic Ocean. Okay. So that we're talking, so Finland and Sweden, for example, do not have coastline. They're in the Arctic. They're above the Arctic Circle, the northern parts of the country, uh, but they don't border on the, on, the, uh, on the Arctic Ocean itself. So you really, you're talking about the oil and gas regulations of uh, the U.S., Canada, Greenland, Russia, and Norway. You're really talking about those five. And, and those, that, that's, those are the five that constitute sort of the most binding, targeted uh, rules and regulations that I was referring to. In your report, I know you talk about some ways that uh, governments, industry, the Arctic Council ought to be thinking more in terms of more standard regulations, uh, maybe updated regulations, because they're, they're not the same kinds of issues that are faced by offshore drilling in, say, the Gulf of Mexico. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's something that's that was really drawn to everybody's attention by the, the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, and what the Deepwater Horizon Commission, this was the commission that was formed by President Obama to examine that spill and, and uh, assess lessons learned and make some recommendations. One of the very specific conclusions that the commission made was exactly that, um, that what's applicable to offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico is not transferable and applicable to the Arctic. And it really sort of drew everybody's attention to the need to develop Arctic-specific, in the case of the U.S., Alaska-specific standards. There needs to be a governance regime in place that can handle the unique aspects of the Arctic environment. And to, and to, no pun intended, but to drill, drill down a little bit more on that issue, um, what that means is that, yes, there's been some Arctic activity thus far, but it tends to have been in um, waters that are not ice-laden or ice-infested. 
The Norwegians, for example, have been drilling for many years in the North Sea and the Norwegian Sea, right. which are both above the Arctic Circle, but they're not ice-infested ice waters. If you move further north into the Barents, you do have that. The Chukchi and the Beaufort are affected by ice off the coast of Alaska. And that's where you see some, because of this receding polar ice cap, you see greater commercial interest in some of these areas that are affected by ice. Mm -hmm. And that's a completely different environment. And that's where you have people talking about, okay, we need to put in place Arctic-specific, Arctic-tested standards. This means things like polar-class vessels that can handle right. those kinds of waters, um, enhanced pipeline infrastructure that's strengthened to handle freezing temperatures and high winds, things like that. Not to mention human resources issues, training people to operate and work in the Arctic. Right. So there's a, a, I think the Deepwater Horizon Commission not only drew attention to the need to strengthen standards, but to make, in the, in the case of the Arctic, to make them much more tailored to those, those conditions. Right. You, you wrote in the report that the impact of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill cannot be overstated. And these, these are the sorts of things that are coming out of that commission. Absolutely. Uh, that commission, there was uh, former Secretary Salazar of the Department of Interior formed a committee, a bipartisan committee, included members of the industry uh, called the Ocean Energy Safety Advisory Committee. Uh, which looked specifically br broadly at offshore activities, but but also specifically at the Arctic. And they came to the same conclusion that we needed to, to really um, have these kinds of Arctic-specific and Arctic-tested standards in place. Uh, and we heard this throughout our research, this, this mm -hmm. comment that this was an area that, and even the oil companies, not to a person, not to a company, uh, but even amongst the oil and gas community, uh, you do see a recognition that there is a need for this, this approach. Well, let's uh, use the Deepwater Horizon event to uh, segue into the environmental and climate impacts. And I want to emphasize that in your report, you do on numerous occasions call for establishing what you, what you call oil spill prevention control and response as the overarching theme for U.S. chairmanship of the Arctic Council starting mm -hmm. in 2015. Can you speak to why that is one of your top, if not your top recommendation for the U.S. chairmanship? I think it comes in in large part from the experience of the Deepwater Horizon accident, mm -hmm. and all, much of the literature that you look at, and and many of the, most of the discussions we heard, emphasize this point: the time to be prepared is now, rather than try to scramble around and address an oil spill in isolated waters when it happens. Now, some folks that we talked to including in the oil companies and including in some government departments amongst the Arctic states that deal with the oil and gas industry, emphasize this. They would say, well, moving into these more challenging areas is many decades away. I mean, there may be development plans in place. There may be plans on the drawing board. But commercial production is probably in the 2030s or 2040s even. Some oil companies have said this. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there's really no rush to strengthen the governance regime. What, what's, what's in place now and where the drilling is taking place in non-isolated waters is sufficient. Um, our argument is now is the time to do it. 2030 actually is not that far away in terms of um, oil and gas drilling. By the time you identify a site, do your exploration, um, seismic testing, and, and get to commercial production, you, you'll be at the 2030s. But the point is, I think what Deepwater Deep Horizon told us is not only do you have to tailor your regulations to a, a specific environment, uh, you need to do it in advance of right. anything happening to be prepared. And I think that's particularly the case in the Arctic where you have a very unique environment where there hasn't been a lot of offshore drilling in these, in these new areas. Well, there are some environmental groups who would say 
uh, just don't drill in the Arctic at all, have it be a pristine environment the way it is now. What do you say about that? In the piece we did, we emphasized that we were not taking a position on drilling pro or con. Our view is really that the train has pretty much already left the station. Uh, receding ice cap is providing access to the resources. It is estimated that the resources are there. The governments of the Arctic coastal states have largely put in place policies to support the exploitation of those resources for economic development reasons, creation of jobs, etc. And there is commercial interest there. So given these factors, uh, I think that it's not a question of if commercial drilling will take place. It's a matter of when, and that just argues even more for putting in place some sort of strength and governance regime in advance. The other sort of characteristic uh, of this situation is that the nature of the Arctic is it's a largely enclosed area, the Arctic Ocean, right? So you have the, the issue that what happens in one country's territorial borders could easily affect the territorial waters of, of a neighboring country or another country in the Arctic region. And so if the U.S., for example, bans drilling in the Arctic, uh, in the Chukchi Sea, well, the Russians could be drilling just over the border in their right. version of the Chukchi Sea. So it seems to us a, a more relevant policy approach to make sure that if this drilling is going to take place, that it take place responsibly rather than try to take a tact of having some sort of a, a regional ban on commercial drilling. The other thing I might emphasize on this point, too, is there are ways of trying to protect, protect particularly sensitive areas. For example, there may be um, marine mammal uh, migration paths uh, that should be protected or could be off limits. Um, in fact, uh, the Department of Interior in the U.S. did this with the shells uh, drilling in the summer of 2012 by requiring that they put in place sort of seasonal drilling rest restrictions mm -hmm. and area drilling restrictions so that you can put certain areas uh, off limits and certain times of drilling off limits for reasons such as this, you know, the impact on, on the indigenous communities and, and marine mammal migration patterns, things like that, so that there's some adaptability um, and flexibility within the, within the regulations to take take uh, into consideration these these environmental sensitivities. Let me let me turn to an interesting fact that you have in the report, and that's related to the receding of the ice, and that's uh, something you call the seismic shift in global transportation routes. You said that uh, it could reduce the distance between Europe and Asia by thousand two hundred miles. What kind of impacts does that have then on the way that governments in the private sector view the Arctic? Well, this is one of the areas where that <clears throat> increasing ac access is attracting quite a bit of attention. It's not only attention on uh, minerals, oil and gas, fisheries, et cetera. It is on shipping routes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the estimates I've seen suggest that just in the period... So to step back, there's two sort of routes that are talked about. One is the northern sea route, which essentially, if you start from the Bering Strait, runs along the coastline of Russia mm -hmm. um, all the way to off the coast of Norway and then into the North Atlantic. Right. You have a map of this in your report that I'll put on the uh, web page right. of the podcast. And then the other is the Northwest Passage, which, again, starting from the Bering Strait, running, running along the coast of the U.S. and, right. and, the, and uh, the coast of, of Canada and through the Canadian Archipelago Islands and out into the North Atlantic. It's the northern sea route along the coast of Russia and into the North Atlantic that is attracting the most attention. And we've seen... Uh, one statistic I've seen, which sort of illustrates this, in just the two-year period from 2010 to 2012, there's been about a tenfold increase in uh, in trips, in marine traffic, 
on the northern sea route. Now, a lot of this is accompanied by Russian icebreakers to to make its way through, but it's it, the the ice is uh, has been uh, in such a condition which is it's made this commercially viable. You know, Russia estimates that that the number of trips by 2020 could increase 30-fold, so they're expecting even more traffic. China, for example, expects by 2020 that 15% of all its foreign trade will be shipped through the Northern Sea Route. And it just cuts so much distance and therefore cost out of this uh, transportation that um, it is really attracting the attention of, of the international community. Far beyond the Arctic states, I might add, China is not obviously an Arctic state, but it is very interested in the Arctic because of this issue with shipping. So is South Korea, so is Singapore. And in fact, Singapore has an Arctic ambassador for this very reason, because as a large shipping, a country with a lot of shipping interests, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the Arctic is drawing their attention very seriously. Speaking of the Arctic ambassador, that's a recommendation you make in your report. What are some of the kinds of things that you recommend the U.S. government do as policy toward the Arctic? I think the so the the recommendation to um, appoint a very senior official along the lines of an Arctic ambassador is part and parcel of this idea to get the U.S. to focus and and institutionally and structurally streamline their approach. Right? Mm -hmm. This is just a, just a way of giving an individual and an office a portfolio to look at and coordinate Arctic activities. And that's accompanied by our recommendation to establish a, a polar bureau in the Department of State for the same reason, you know, sort of putting in one site a, a structurally a group that would, would focus on the Arctic and be able to coordinate, in theory, um, the various interests throughout the U.S. government. There's, right. there's just so many that focus on Alaska alone, for example. Um, right, you talked about the Coast Guard, Department of Defense. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Which is under Department of Commerce, right. EPA. And the Department uh, of Interior, I think, has some. Sure, the Department of Interior, because they have two groups, one that does the leasing for offshore assets, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, offshore um, plays, oil and gas plays, as well as um, BSEE, which is the regulator who oversees the activities. So there's quite a few agencies involved. And um, the Obama administration has made some attempt. Uh, there was an intra-agency task force created by executive order a few years ago um, that was designed to try to improve that intra-agency coordination. Uh, and I think that was a step in the right direction to, to try to, to streamline the, the, the bureaucracy. We're hoping that our recommendations here kind of add to that mm -hmm. uh, ability to, to coordinate the, the policy. And at the very least, to try to put some focus on the Arctic, particularly from a budgetary standpoint. Uh, and that, of course, brings Congress into the role uh, into the picture in terms of what their role is uh, with regard to Arctic policy in the U.S. And I think largely we admit that we do not look, we admit in the paper, we did, we don't, we did not have the scope to look into details regarding what the budget should be or how Congress should approach this. But we do make the point that it's clear that in order to, in order to put the proper focus on the Arctic and enact some of the rec recommendations that right. we're suggesting, you really do need to have the resources to accompany it. In the paper, you uh, you write that the Coast Guard considers the U.S. to be a, quote, Arctic nation. Do you think it's likely that the American people will come to think of us as an Arctic nation? Or is that a useful way of thinking? It's a challenge, mm -hmm. <laughs> to say the least. Um, but look, you know, uh, I think 27% of Alaska is above the Arctic Circle. Mm -hmm. And much of their economy depends on uh, activities, oil and gas, minerals, fishing, that take place in, in the Arctic, above the, above the Arctic Circle. 
and obviously given its location and uh, its unique aspects in terms of flora, fauna, fisheries, etc. Also the fact that it, you know, the Arctic Ocean, we share a border with some of our close allies, we share mm -hmm. a border with, uh, or proximity at least, with Russia, and we know there's a lot going on there, that it, it deserves attention. And I, I agree, it is a, definitely a challenge to get the average American, much less the average congressman, I think, to focus on the U.S. as, as an Arctic nation. But I think the Congress and the U.S. population at large would be well served if the government was able to draw attention to how important the region is and the need to be prepared and start focusing on the region now in advance of uh, expanding commercial activity and all the other aspects of the region that we're, we've been talking about. So what's next for um, your work in this area, the Energy Security Initiative at Brookings work in this area? Where do you take this? Well, we are embarking on a piece of research to look at Greenland's role in particular. Um, that will encompass, from mostly a policy perspective uh, and also a regulatory perspective, looking at uh, the resource base, how they're mm -hmm. approaching um, governance and how they're, how they're crafting their policy to deal with the Arctic, not just in oil and gas, but, but we're extending it a little bit broadly. But certainly oil and gas will, will provide a, a centerpiece to that, uh, that research. And again, Greenland is self-governed, but they follow Denmark for foreign policy, military That's policy. That's correct. Yeah, it's largely autonomous, but uh, in, those, in those two areas, it is still linked to, uh, to, the, to the Danish government. And the government of Greenland has, and the premier has stated on a number of occasions, that they look at oil and gas and minerals uh, and its development as a way to increase its autonomy from mm -hmm. the Danish government that as a way of generating more revenue and and uh, creating jobs and just simply expanding economic development, they lessen their dependence right. uh, on the Danish government. So they see that really as quite closely linked to its longer-term uh, political and foreign policy goals, which is to be independent. John, this has been a really interesting conversation. I've learned a lot. I'm going to put the, uh, the report and other materials on the webpage so that our uh, listeners can go can go check them out. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. To learn more about John Banks and the work of the Energy Security Initiative, visit brookings.edu ESI. And don't forget to subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast on iTunes.